Well, good afternoon. That was uh, very, very good. It's very uh, very nice, pleasant song that has some, some wonderful lyrics. And I almost kind of got lost in it and started forgetting what I was getting ready to come up here and start doing and speaking. So I appreciate that. I'd like to see much more of that in the future. Well, the title of this message, as you can see uh, on, the, on the board behind me, is The Complacent Christian. And according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the word complacency in the English language, if you were to go online, and like I did, just did a Google search, and the first dictionary that came up was the Merriam-Webster Dictionary online, two different versions of this definition that basically says the same thing, but complacency is defined by a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not wanting to try to make them better. A complacent feeling or condition. It's also denoted by a self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by an unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Now I think it's safe to say that all of us are human beings, and this is something I think that as humans, we go through so many different walks in our life. We have so many different things that, you know, take place. You know, the time that we were little kids, and then adolescence, and then young adulthood, and then middle age, and then all the way until the end of our journey on this earth. We go through so many stages in life, and I can tell you, I'm only 31 years old, and 10 years ago, what was very interesting to me then, and what I was passionate about and fired up about, isn't necessarily the same thing I'm fired up and passionate about today. Now, of course, we'll get into, I'm not giving a message today because I'm saying I'm a complacent Christian now, and back then I was, you know, all fired up. But we will get to that, and I think a lot of us, though, can identify, you know, we have different eras in our life. And as we journey through our life, as we have hobbies, have, as we have interests, as we have, have jobs, uh, we deal with this human condition of just trying to figure out, you know, how to continually be hungry. You know, there's three areas that I was thinking about when I was thinking about, you know, it, recently I was in a, in a course, a leadership course, and one of the topics, and of course this area of life when it comes to the idea of complacency, is the idea of the workforce. You know, what do you do to combat complacency in your job. Let's just think about it this way. What do you do whenever you're maybe at a company, and say you're just so happy to be in a management position, and someone who is directly below you, but maybe has an important role, maybe they're the, the head of your sales team, has two years left until they retire. How do you fire that person up? How do you keep that person from becoming complacent? Like, and this is something businesses deal with. This is something schools deal with. This is something organizations across the board they deal with. How to deal with people who are in any kind of organization from getting complacent. Getting to where they're just, they're kind of, you know, I'm at the eve of my career. Another project. You know, another trend. Maybe they just don't have it in them. You know, maybe we, we have... You know, at young ages, the same things that we go through. Marriage is one of them. Marriage is another area that sometimes people become complacent in. They're satisfied. 
we really don't need to work on our marriage anymore. We've kind of arrived. You know, what else is there to really do? You're happy, I'm happy. And so there's a lot of, I think, naturalness to that. It's, it's, it's commonplace. We get, what's that word? Comfortable, right? We get comfortable. We get comfortable whether it be our jobs, whether it be in our marriage. I, I, you know, coaches deal with this. You know, how do you take a, a, your star athlete and try to convince them, even though they continually break records, whatever it may be, that, hey, you need to continue to work and get better. They're a three-time state champion wrestler. They're the state leader in passing in, in the high school, for high school as a, as a quarterback. How do you deal with these situations? And for us today, looking at this particular subject that we're looking at, the question is, can complacency happen in the Christian life? Can complacency happen in the Christian life? And I think that all of us would confirm that, of course, this is indeed the case. It can happen, and it does happen. And maybe we've even been in situations where we've realized, man, I'm kind of becoming complacent in my Christian walk, in my journey. I think, actually, when we read the Bible, we can identify many different examples of complacency that, you know, satisfaction of, well, I... I'm kind of, you know, I don't really need to do anything else. I've kind of arrived. I'm, kind of, I'm not really interested necessarily. Maybe you don't verbalize that in your head. Maybe it's not the, particularly the way you directly think, but maybe you're subconsciously, you've gotten to the point where it's like, well, what else do I need to do? I've done everything. I mean, what else do I need to grow from? I mean, how can I grow? I've, I've lived this life. I've, I've done so many different things. And one in particular place in the biblical world that we're going to look at today is a particular group of people that shows so many different signs of complacency that it's almost a book that when you read this book, and 1 Corinthians is the, is the, is the, the epistle of Paul that I'm talking about, it's almost like you have whiplash. There's so many things going on. There's so many issues that the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this book, is dealing with. And we're going to look at some of them. Some of them today, more in particular, we're going to look at one of them. But the issues that Paul has to deal with, just from opening up the book, starts off with issues of people having this big dispute on who they claim that they are following. Some say, oh, I'm a follower of Paul. He baptized me. Some says, I'm a follower of Apollos. There's this, like, power struggle that really, you know, the, the Apollos and Paul, they're really not even involved in it. It's just more of like a badge, like, well, I, you know, I follow Paul. He baptized me. Have you heard of his story before? You know, he used to be a Pharisee. He's so smart. He knows all these things. And then Jesus directly came to him. And then someone else might come along and try to argue for why they are actually, you know, they should be maybe a little bit, you know, looked at a little bit higher because they were baptized by someone that's maybe a little bit higher on the totem pole, Apollos. And so Paul's dealing with this issue of human struggle among, you know, who, you know who's, who's got the better baptism? Kind of strange when you think about it, when you look at it. He's also talking to a group of people that apparently have gotten so lax, or shall we say, uh, 
confused on what the Passover is for, if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually having to address the issue of what, you know, he says, you know, the Lord's table, we, we know it as the, the institution of the Passover celebration with the drinking of the wine and, and the eating of the bread, you know, and obviously the representation of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. Paul is actually having to deal with some people who had took it upon themselves that since that they are told to basically drink wine in remembrance of, of Jesus' blood, blood and body, that it was a license to get drunk. He says, some of you, you know, go hungry and, and some of you drink to the point of excess, to, to, to drunk. I mean, he's having to deal with all of these issues. In particular, the one we're going to look at today is in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Now, just to kind of back up, I don't want to act like this is something, in other words, I, I don't want to, this is an issue in particular, the epistle to the Corinthians. This is a group issue. But what I would like us to do is to kind of look at it as a personal issue as far as look at this in thinking about our individual lives and our spiritual journey with Christ as individuals. So let's go to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and this begins this this, like, you know, he's already dealt with some of the issues. Now he begins this, like, series of, like, look, uh, there's so many issues that I had to deal with that probably I should address to you, but where do I begin? I'm going to begin with one of the most, you know, mind-boggling things there is. He opens it up and he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a... Man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I, indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6 says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we've all probably been exposed to this passage before, to this story, and we're going to get into it. But what I want us to think about right here is that I don't think that Paul is so... It's not so much just that sin is persisting in this congregation that's so surprising. But rather, it is how people in this community are reacting to such sin. So first of all, let's ask the question, what is the sin? What is it that is so sinful? Why is it so bad? Why is this sin in particular like more grievous than maybe some other sins? Well, the passage tells us sexual immorality. This is a Greek word meaning porneia. And in particular, it is used for a type of sexual immorality in marital status or in, at least in, in particular sexual relations 
with a forbidden person, with a forbidden mate. In fact, sometimes this term had become an almost like a like a like one of those terms that could be applied to many different situations. It could be applied sometimes to homosexuality. It could be applied to perverse sexual acts and things like that. But in particular, what is going on right here is that a man, somehow, whether we don't know the whole story, we don't know everything about it, we don't know if this person's father is now dead, but this person has took, as in a relationship, an ongoing relationship, his father's wife, okay? Now, there's an interesting textual note right here that I want to point out. When you read, and scholars have identified this and people have looked at this, the way that the Greek opens up where it actually says that it is actually reported, it demonstrates something that doesn't necessarily come off to the English eye. Paul is actually saying this in such a way, in a nonced way, where it was almost like, I cannot believe what I am hearing. This report is so common, and not only it is actually reported among you, the idea in it is that this is an issue that is like so open that me, miles and miles away, have heard about it. Everyone in the community knows about it. Gentiles, people who are outside the church, they know about it. It's just an openly thing that's being flaunted. That's kind of the way that basically it comes off in the original language. And the most likely scenario, and just to kind of back up real quick, this was probably, no one I have seen identify this as actually being this individual's mother, biological mother. All think that because the lack of particular terms in this case, which would be, have been applied if this was actually his actual mother, uh, would have been used. But because the way it's presented you know, your father's wife, it is most likely, uh, without a doubt, a stepmother of this individual. And not only this, this is not necessarily something that's just like a one fling thing. The language, the present tense language is, is as if this is an ongoing relationship. Possibly marriage has taken place between this woman and this man. If not, at least they are shacking up together. They are living together. And they are obviously doing something that is very grievous because, if you did not know, Leviticus 18.8, Deuteronomy 20.30, Deuteronomy 27.20. This is a prohibition in the law of God. There's actually passages that say that basically this type of thing is not to be done. You are not to have your father's wife. Even if your father dies. This is something that says that it uncovers his nakedness. It shames your father. And of course we know that how important it is to honor our father and our mother. And there's a curse that goes along with this type of sin right here. In fact, an interesting little you know, point of reference, if you look at the language, he even mentions that even like the Gentiles, you know, this is you know, above what they would be partaking in. I mean, this is something that even in the secular realm would be considered you know, very distasteful, very dishonorable to one's parent. Now, there's a little bit of background information that I think most of us probably are familiar with, but we do kind of need to cover, that kind of, I think, clears up some of this whenever it comes to sexual immorality in the Gentile world. Sexual immorality is something that's talked about over and over in the New Testament. 
it's almost to the point, and especially because we're dealing with a world that is very Hellenistic influence. In other words, in this world that we are opening up to, it is a mixture. It's a cultural mess. It's this, this you know, mixture of, of ancient Greek, ancient, you know, all these different ancient Persian, Roman civilizations, all these cultures that basically collide with each other. And we call it Hellenism. It's basically the mixture of all these different elements. And one thing is for sure, and we've probably been exposed to this at some point in time in our studies, is that there were all different types of acts, particularly sexual acts, that took place and that were commonplace within this Hellenistic world. So much that when we open the New Testament, sexual immorality is mentioned over and over and over again to the point where you would think that for some reason sexual immorality is not good, it is bad, it is something that can be very destructive on, a, on individuals in every way, shape, or form. But it's almost as if like that's like, you know, the scarlet letter sin, like that's like the, you know, like everything else is kind of over here and sexual immorality is over here. One of the reasons it's so touched upon is because of its prevalence. It is an issue that continually comes up. These Gentiles that we are dealing with here, in this world, they come from the world they come from. And as they enter the Christian realm, one thing we do know is, is that there's this confusion of what's okay and what's not okay. What crosses the line and what doesn't cross the line. You know, there's this story in Acts, the 15th chapter. It's a very interesting story. People use it all the time to, to try to justify why Gentiles, they don't, they don't need to keep the law of God. They, you know, they, they've been, that's been done away for them. They just need to focus on, you know, the New Testament laws. And the reason is, is because in the conference that took place in Acts, the 15th chapter, the question was, is like, you know, do Gentiles have to be, you know, circumcised to be saved? And there's this debate. And at the end of it, they says that, you know, we have made a decision not to trouble the Gentiles with anything but these three things. And it was sexual immorality, it was idols, strangled, you know, strangled idols, and idolatry. And the reason for that is really simple. There's also a little part in there that says that as Moses has been preached, you know, for generations after generation. In this world, one of the things that they realized and they identified, and it comes out later as this continues to be a prevalent issue, is that we are talking about converts that have, are so behind on just what should be okay and what shouldn't be okay that what's immediately expedient right now is for them to stop doing these grievous sexual immoral things. You can't have someone participating in sexual immorality galore, not even realize how bad it is, but really you're just emphasizing Sabbath and law and, and things like that. What is immediately important right now is for them to abstain from these grievous things that are against, you know, that are absolute, going to bring, you know, condemnation on them and their house. And then as time goes on, as it mentioned, the Sabbath, holy days, those laws, learning of Moses, learning of the, the principles of, of what was been revealed in the Word of God. You know, there's a passage in the Bible, there's a few of them, where it says, you know, what benefit is there of being a Jew? Many, because they've been given the oracles of God. Well, it's very interesting is that someone who was Jewish growing up in this time, they didn't have to learn that you shouldn't do these things. They knew from the very beginning. You know, they had kind of, I guess you would say, they had kind of a head start in life as far as whenever they converted to Christianity or to this, uh, you know, accepting Jesus, they did not have to 
relearn that, well, I shouldn't do idolatry like a Gentile would. Or, you know what, maybe going to the temple and participating in the prostitution uh, cultic practice is probably not something that's honorable. Those are things that they didn't have to learn. And so there was a benefit, but we're dealing with a group of people by no means giving them a pass that have a little bit of a confusion on what's okay and what is not okay. All right? It's interesting that we say this because I think that in this realm today, we've almost come for full circle. I'm not trying to say that 2016 is just like the first century in the biblical world. But I think there's a lot of parallels, and we're getting to that point. There's confusion today on what's right and what's wrong, and if there is even such a thing as what's right and what's wrong. We're living in an age where it's not black and white, but it's gray. Everything's gray. And in fact, it really makes sense. You think about it. You remove God from society. You say there is no God. All of a sudden, you don't have a basis for an objective truth. And it does ring true philosophically. If you do remove God from the equation, why do you get to say what's right? Why do you get to say what's right? Isn't it just a community? And that's basically what people are starting to believe in, is that, well, there's really no universal truths. It's just that, you know, maybe there's some truth for them over there. There's some truth for them over there. Individual communities establish what is expected norms and what is okay. And that's kind of the idea. That's the postmodern world that we are living in today. You know, there was a quote, I don't know who said it one time, but the person said that the Christian is one of the only Bibles many people in this world will ever read. Just think about that. The Christian, we're not talking about the Christian Bible, we're not talking about the Old Testament, we're just talking about the person, the individual. The closest that people will get to reading a Bible is seeing a Christian in, in the world, looking at them, observing what they say and what their actions is which is very telling, especially in this day and age. I had a conversation a few months back with someone, and we were talking about biblical literacy just in our society. And 150 years ago, people knew their Bible. That's how they learned to read, many of them. Many people who you know, learned how to read in the English language very early on, it was done through the Bible. And they knew these stories. And because of that, so many of these biblical stories are embedded into our biblical language. We use a language, English, that is, much of it is embedded in biblical allusions, and often people on a daily basis might have a biblical allusion just in their common conversation, and they don't even realize it because they are biblically illiterate, and I think it goes to show what that, what, what, uh, that, that concept is true, that Christian is the only Bible many people will ever read. So what made this sin so bad? Well, obviously, number one, it's a, a grievous sin. It's dishonoring a, you know, a father. And it's bad because this individual, we don't know if the woman is, because the emphasis is putting, on, putting out the end of this man out of the church. This individual is supposed to be a Christian, supposed to be someone who understands, has been baptized, has accepted Jesus. But Paul says, your attitude, you're puffed up. That's strange to me. You, you have this going on in your congregation, and you're, what do you mean? Are they bragging about it? Are they like, hey, look how much freedom we have. We let people, I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. And so Paul continually talks about this idea of being kind of arrogant. And it's almost as if 
these Corinthians were almost like, hey, we're really excited to show Paul all the things that we've been doing. Look how good we've been going. Look at this. And Paul's like, are you serious? You think that this report is good? It's almost as if, and this is the bad part. This is the dangerous part of being complacent. They didn't even know it. I don't think that they were like, yeah, you know what, we don't care what you think, Paul. They're, they're probably surprised that they're being, you know, lambasted by Paul. They're probably thinking, man, Paul, we thought you were going to come in here and pat us on the back, to, and you, we're going to hear how proud you are of us. The attitude of being puffed up, the issue was arrogance. There was an attitude that allowed all of this to begin in the first place, the language in which Paul speaks tells us that there was complacency among these individuals, which in turn led them to have a blind eye to the situation, almost as if they were content with just letting it be, or even worse, maybe they had gotten to a place that they didn't even see the harm in the situation. That's where you get into the real dangerous area, when you don't even realize the point in which you have come. And so, moving on, in verse 6 through 8, he goes into this analogy that us, are very, you know, we're very familiar with. And just kind of a, a side note here, it's always kind of, you know, doesn't confuse me, but it amuses me that, you know, without the knowledge of, you know, Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, this is really going to be difficult for someone to understand. You know, a continual uh, analogy being used you know, that's based upon the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. So he gives this familiar analogy about leavening. And we know so much of the biblical account, you know, uses leavening as an example of evilness, as an example of sin. And in a nutshell, the Corinthian permissiveness will allow sin to spread just as a tiny bit of leavening. Just, a, you know, no more than just a sprinkle will permeate will basically cause something to become leavened itself. You know, I'm not familiar with baking. Some of you are more familiar with me, uh, familiar than me. But you do know that we, uh, it doesn't take much. Anything that you use to leaven something, to, to make something rise, it's not just going to affect one part. It's not going to be just over here isolated, but it's going to permeate through that entire loaf, through that entire dough, batch of dough. And I think that when it comes to the Corinthians, it wasn't just here. It didn't just start with one situation, but it seems as if there was this permeating issue, this permeating attitude that was going on in, in the church that was causing these things to take place. Now, Mark, I'm going to have to agree with you wholeheartedly, even though when I'm getting ready, the analogy I'm getting ready to bring up, and it's about King David, I think that he is a wonderful example in our biblical account, but he's also a great example of what not to do sometimes, unfortunately. I was thinking about this. We all have heard of David's shortcomings. We've all have heard the things that David did later on in his life. And we have all heard of the great story of David and Bathsheba. But there's one little part of that story that sometimes I think a lot of us look over, and especially, you know, I've read this story many times, I've preached on it, and this one little detail, which has been written on so much until of recently, I didn't really consider it and think about it, and that is what precludes that incident 
and 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, with him and the adultery that was committed by him with the woman Bathsheba. If you were to go to 2 Samuel, chapter 11, and you were to open this story up, the first passage is very interesting. Because in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And I really have always overlooked this, and I'm sure many of us have, and never really thought much of it. Okay, so we stay in Jerusalem. What's the big deal? But when you dig a little deeper, you kind of find out that a lot of David's problems begins right here with this decision to stay back in Jerusalem and not go out to the battle. And we see in the spring of the year, it's a very common thing, uh, the spring of the year, I mean, it, it's, it's, war is never good, either in the 21st century or in, you know, the 5th century B.C. But it's especially not good in the wintertime. And so it was commonplace for troops, for, for people in, in the military and, and these countries, to these nations, that they would wait until it would warm up. You know, you got chariots. Chariots don't go very well in mud, and things are wet, and things are cold. And actually, it's very dangerous uh, to go and battle in the wintertime because oftentimes you're living off the land and you're having just to, you know, basically supply your needs as you go through different cities. But I was reading an article this week and I was kind of looking into this idea of basically David staying back in Jerusalem and, and, and looking at some of the issues that, you know, why did he do that? And first of all, we do know one thing. When it comes to being a king of Israel, one of the things that was their duty is to go out before the people to basically fight their enemies for them. And so I was reading this article, and this individual, he put up a list of possibilities, and a few of them I thought were very interesting. And one of them was, could David have become arrogant? Could he have gotten to the point where it was like, you know what, I've been so successful, God, you know, I'm, you know God chose me, I'm a man after God's own heart, he's listening to some of his press clippings maybe. You know, I'm, you know, maybe, you know, uh, maybe I want to know how much I, you know, just how powerful am I? Hey, Joab, go count everybody. Let's see how big we are. It's possible that David allowed his successes, his situation in life, maybe he was getting a little arrogant. Maybe he wanted to take this one off. Maybe because he knows, hey, he's had a hard life. I mean, he, like we heard earlier, I mean, he ran for his life for the beginning part. He, you know, the king of Israel was after him. Even though, I mean, surely, <laughs> he's had his share of, you know, you know hanging out in, in less than desirable places. He's probably had his share of nights where, you know, the cuisine wasn't really up to the par that he's, you know, having now in his life, living in a palace as the king of the unified Israel. And you know what? Besieging a city, it's not an overnight deal. The point of it is, is that you starve them out, which could, depending on how you know, resourceful that city has been, it could take months and months and months for this to take place. So maybe he just was like, yeah, I, I got to have a break. I've done my, you know what, one battle, I'm, you know, I'm the man after God's own heart. One battle, surely, you know, I can even lead 
my people to victory over their enemies, and I am be there. What's worse, though, and this is reminiscent of someone else, could it be possible that David has become Saul-like? Remember Saul? Saul loved finding people to do his work for him. You remember that story about David and Goliath? Well, Goliath was this giant, right, among the Philistines. Who was Israel's giant? Saul, the king, the one that stood above everyone else, that had the appearance. He didn't fight Goliath. The least case scenario, the least likely to fight this giant, this little shepherd boy, David, fought Goliath. Is it possible that David, and of course, again, we know that David has you know, a wonderful story, and you know, we have to praise God that he gave us. That's a beautiful thing about the Bible, is that you don't just get the good parts, you get the bad parts just as well, and sometimes you learn more from the bad parts than you do the good parts. Because we see how David actually responds and realizes, and he actually admits when he's wrong, unlike the one who preceded him, Saul. You know, in 2 Samuel 12, 28, when all this was done, when the Amorites were almost fully besieged, Rabbah was almost to crumble into the hands of Israel, Joab actually had to send to David and said, David, we're about to be done. It's about over. We about have the city besieged. You need to come to the battle. I mean, this is really important. This is a PR thing, so to speak. It doesn't look good, and that's exactly what Joab says. Joab says, hey, come, because if you don't, the people might start calling Rabbah after me, and you're not going to get, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that the king of Israel is supposed to be the one present at the end of the besiegement. So we know the story of what happened because he stood home. Now, it's not an excuse. I mean, obviously, if David would have done what he probably should have done, what was more characteristic of him later, if he would have done those things, this probably wouldn't have happened. But there's some consequences to David staying back in Jerusalem. Number one, he commits adultery. Number two, this adultery results in the death of many men. Now, I say many men mainly because if you look at the story and you look at the background of Uriah, you all know the story, he has a he has an adulterous relationship with this woman, Bathsheba. She's married. The person she's married to is Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite fights in David's army. David decides to bring him home, tries to hook up basically Bathsheba and Uriah because Bathsheba has become pregnant and he wants to pass it off as if it's Uriah's baby, but no one's going to believe that that's Uriah's baby because Uriah's been off at battle. That doesn't work. And so the second plan is, well, I'm going to send him back to the battle, and I'm going to tell Joab, my commander of my army, to put him in the most fierce part of the battle. But they didn't, what you don't realize when you look at, you know, how they fought war and battles during this period of time, it wasn't just going to be Uriah. It was going to be everybody in his camp. He's not just going to, you know, be so obvious as, hey, stick him out there and everybody else leave him. More or less, his camp, his little units would be put in the fiercest part of the battle, and the rest of the military will basically break away leaving them to have to fight on their own, making it a sure death. So more than one man would have been dead because as a result of what David did. David would also obviously have to face the consequences of his own baby being struck and, and dying. 
he would have family strife as a result of this. And when you're the king, and you got strife in your family, not just your family is the ones affected. Because we're going to see this strife is actually going to be a power strife. And more than just David and his family is going to be affected, but many people in the nation of Israel is going to be affected as well. The complacency. Could it be possible that David became complacent and it set up a breeding ground for him to go on this cycle? This beginning of woes for David's middle part, you know, that success maybe kind of ran to his head. Maybe he's, I'm, I'm, I'm the man after God's own heart. Now I've kind of arrived. I'm going to set this battle out. And you know what? I've done a lot for God. I've done a lot for God. Maybe, maybe it's time for me to get a little bit of, you know, a little payback, a little rest, a little R&R, so to speak. Is that possible? And right here, this is exactly what's going on in, when we turn and look back at the Corinthian church. The entire Corinthian church is at risk of suffering the devastating consequences of this one man's sin. Not so much because one member sinned. It's not such a big deal because you know, some sexual immorality was going on in the church. That is not good in any way, shape, or form. But the bigger issue is the complacency that was going on among the Corinthian or, or, uh, church and group that reacted inappropriately to the way and to what was going on, to the point where that grave danger was not just lurking at the door anymore. Grave danger actually had took up its abode within the congregation. And so when we read verse 7 through 8, he says, Put out the old leaven. Put out the old leaven. And he gives the analogy of Passover that we've all heard many times before. And the analogy, as we know, the commandment tells us, we remove leavening during this season of our life, and we know what it represents. We know it represents our sin, something that we are all very familiar with. And we know that what Paul says here is that remove the old leavening from your life, for you are unleavened. You are unleavened. You need to live up to what you are. You know, it's interesting, that's... One thing that I want to kind of point out about being complacent in church, being complacent as a Christian, I don't think that means that we need to go around, man, I was saved yesterday, but I'm not today. Am I good enough? I don't think that means that God wants you to go around worrying about yourself all the time. I don't think it means that, you know, you're supposed to go around, you know, like, like you're you know, destined for eternal damnation because you don't feel like you quite measure up. I think that God still obviously wants us to be very happy and He wants us to enjoy our life. I'm not saying that we can't be comfortable in our life and still you know, be working to press on. But what we do know is, is that there are pieces of leavening that still try to creep up in our lives. Let's go to Colossians, the third chapter, real quick. Just read something. We all have different types of leavening that pops up in our lifetime to time. You know, the, the Bible tells us that, you know, when we accept Christ, we accept his blood, that we are baptized with Christ and we come up a new creature. We join him in baptism as a celebration of a, as a watery grave. We put to death our old man. But even though that's the case, we still have some of that old man that's stingy sometimes and doesn't really quite want to go away. So when we look at Colossians, the third chapter, we see all these different things that are popping up. 
Colossians 3, verse 1, it says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And there's many things that we could identify in this. Obviously, this is a very general. But there's things, you know, sexual immorality, greed, unrighteous anger, friendship with the world, all of those things that we were supposed to put to death. All of those things that because of who we are when God sees us, you know, because of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be living up to our calling. In a nutshell, Paul is telling Corinthians that they needed to live up to who they are. That their Passover, Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb that was without blemish, removed the leavening from our lives. But yet, they were not walking worthy of their calling. As Ephesians 4.1 says, walk in, a worthy, walk in a worthy manner of the calling which you have been called. And he says, replace, with malice, replace malice and wickedness with sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Two concepts I think that we've lived and heard many times. But it seems like we don't see a lot of that anymore in our world. Sincerity and truth, it's almost as if it's becoming kind of like a, you know, something that's very rare to see and not to be doom and gloom at all, but it is something that we continually see, you know, horrible things continue to happen. In closing, I want to go to Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation, the third chapter. Uh, we've all read this before. Very interesting. It's one of the seven churches that Jesus is addressing, and it's probably the, one of the worst ones. But I think there's something very interesting in what is being said here. Revelation, the third chapter, verse 14. He's talking to the church at Laodicea. He says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's another example of people who don't realize the situation and the state in which they have become. Verse 18 I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I have loved, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here you have a group of people. Let's just think about this individually. Back to that idea of becoming so complacent. They say, you know, we're rich. We need no instructions. In reality, they're blind. They're miserable. They're poor. Jesus says, you need eye salve. You need your eyes opened. You are blind to the realities at hand. You are blind to the realities at hand. As it stands, Tuesday, I think, is March the 1st, and it's just a personal thing for me. Every time March comes around, my mind immediately says spring, even though we could very well have five feet of snow next Friday in this state. But I always think of spring. March is always the spring season for me. It's kind of the way I think about it. And spring brings none other than, again, the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Even so, it is later than usual this year. So with this message today, I want us to think about kind of our, our journey with God. I want us to think about the ideas of being complacent. Because I, I really, I think that complacency is something that all of us can kind of get in, into at some point in our life, especially in our spiritual journey. And unfortunately, I think complacency, what comes after that, if we stay within complacency, is apathy. And that is basically just a total, like, you know, a lack of zeal at all, a lack of passion at all whatsoever. And I think that's because in complacency, when you feel like you've arrived and there's really nothing else you need to do, I think it forces you to, like, stop doing some of the same things that you used to do. And so, like... Hebrews, the 12th chapter, I'm not saying you have to turn there. Verse 1, it says, run the race with endurance. It tells us to basically put off the weights that so easily ensnare us and run the race with endurance. And so this is a race that we're, we're running. And it doesn't matter how long we've been in the church. It doesn't matter how, how, how old we are. Our bodies can fail us. Our health can fail us. And they will fail us. And we know they will because that's not the new creature that is being created in us. The new creature in us is a spiritual creature. And so with this, I just want to just encourage us to, you know, think about that race. Think about where we are on that race. We're all in different places on that race. And think about, you know, how can we continue to improve our endurance? Maybe it's just, you know, maybe we just need to, you know, get, get back involved. And what I'm saying involved, involved with God personally. Start praying again more. Start studying our Bible more. Start, you know, putting God in the forefront of our minds, okay? And asking Him to anything that we've done to ourselves to blind ourselves, uh, because we're human, and because we all go through this, any areas of our life that we've become complacent for Him to, 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 to open us up to that. You know, Mark said something at the beginning of this uh, service today. He said that, you know, what would you do if you saw the king? the King of Kings, you know, your Savior, Jesus. And he said, I would fall down prostrate in front of him. And that's a 100% absolutely correct response. Anyone that would see him should do that. And one of the reasons is, is because who we are in comparison to who he is, is a terrible thing. And I mean terrible in, in, in a good way and in a bad way. In a good way if we're on his side. In a good way if we have accepted him. Uh, because it... You know, it's, it's a terrible thing to be naked in front of a, a, a living God as we have. 
And what I mean by naked, like exposed for who we are. And there's no hiding who we really are in front of God Almighty. He sees all. And uh, the unworthiness that we all have, I think that just realizing the total unworthiness that we have before God and, 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 and then seeing how unworthy we are, but the grace and mercy that He decided to bestow upon us that right there, getting back to, to seeing that is enough, in my opinion, uh, to fire us back up and to, to make us continually realize, yeah, I haven't arrived, I'll never arrived, because I can never, no matter what I do, match who he is, what he does, and what he, continu- or what he did, and what he continually does for us every day in our life.